course, environmentalists, including me, think we should protect nature because it's just the right thing to do, period, full stop. I agree with that. But we need more people on the side of nature and more financial resources on the side of nature and more political allies on the side of nature. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm here to peel back the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. On the show today is Mark Tursek. Mark is the former president and CEO of The Nature Conservancy. He's the co-author of the book Nature's Fortune, which I recommend during the interview. Prior to The Nature Conservancy, Mark was a managing director and partner at Goldman Sachs for 24 years and was a member of the faculty at New York University's Stern School of Business. Today, Mark spends his time advising companies, investors, and NGOs on ambitious environmental initiatives and also writes a bi-weekly newsletter on Substack, The Instigator, which I also recommend in the show. This is a great interview. I'm super excited to get into it. We cover Mark's climate journey, his unique perspective on the intersection of finance, capitalism, and the environment. We get into the importance of climate disclosures and carbon accounting with some added history of gap financial accounting and other lessons from his career for how to move the world closer to net zero emissions. Let's get into it. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah, super excited. I already know we're going to run out of time, but I'm going to start with a question out of left field, which is I'd love to talk about shoveling snow because I think it will cover many things that we're going to talk about, including including climate change, inflation, entrepreneurship, all these things. In your book, you talk about shoveling snow in Cleveland. I'd love to hear your business tactics, what you charged back then, uh, and how often you got to shovel. Ah, well, you're nice to ask about that. I haven't thought about it in a very long time. I grew up right in the city of Cleveland, Ohio, kind of an ethnic working class neighborhood. Most uh, most of my friends' parents or grandparents came from Eastern Europe, mine from Slovenia. Um, so it was a very urban um, setting. We mostly lived in smaller places, and it was back in the days when kids' time was unsupervised. So we were outside all the time. So we were outside in the winter. And Cleveland, I think it's mellowed a little bit, but we had pretty rough winters. Lots of snow, snow, wind right off the lake. I lived right by Lake Erie. And anyway, we were outside all the time. That's why I referenced it in my book. I I didn't really grow up in nature, but I I did grow up outside. And then, yes, a big part of our neighborhood and a very big part of my family upbringing was work ethic, hustle, make your own way. So um, most of my childhood, I had a paper route for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. It was a huge paper route. I think it actually was a big part of my life. But I had a variety of other jobs, always hustling to make a few bucks. And in the wintertime, one of those was shoveling. I don't remember what we charged, but it was pretty lucrative because when it dumped, we had, I think, I think they called it the lake effect. So there was a, some sort of weather event that created a very large amount of heavy, wet snow. And so, you know, it had to be shoveled. Back in those days, there weren't like professional, at least where we live, professional shoveling services. And so kids like us could do pretty well. We would even sometimes march around and see a car stuck in the snow. And then we, even as young kids, we knew we had some bargaining leverage, negotiating leverage. So we would get paid pretty well. But yes, I did a lot of shows, snow shoveling, grass mowing, gutter cleaning. I grew up doing that sort of stuff. Brings back good memories. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I asked because I think 
similar to yourself as how I made most of my money as a kid. And growing up in Maryland outside of DC, we felt like we were getting less and less snow every year, right? And so it's a great example of climate impact. Uh, I mean, not necessarily a great example, but it's an example of impacting small individual uh, entrepreneurs per se. Yeah. So fast forwarding a little bit from Cleveland, you end up making the jump from Wall Street, kind of peak at your career, Goldman to TNC. I'd love if you could tell that story to, and TNC being the nature conservancy. How did that come to be? Um, what were you thinking at the time? Sure. I think I was really fortunate in hindsight. Um, again, the point of that growing up in Cleveland story was I didn't, I didn't really grow up as an environmentalist at all. And that continued to be the case. Uh, Both my wife and I had kind of urban um, upbringings, and then we began raising families. And I lived in New York, sometime in Tokyo too, but I was an urban guy. Um, But anyway, as parents, um, we we had four children. We did make an effort to get our kids exposed to the outdoors. So we started making day trips to New York, then a few weekend trips. Then we even had a few really quite exciting somewhat rugged family adventures, first in Belize and then in Costa Rica. And on all of those outings, um, there's like, I'm a little bit of a geek. I, I would, we, there were usually guides around who were so informative and I was doing some outside reading on how ecosystems work. And I kind of fell in love with nature rather light and late in life. I note that only because I think there's an inner environmentalist in most, most people. So one of the jobs of environmentalists is to, is to bring that out of folks. So anyway, as parents, my wife and I became interested in nature and kind of fell in love with nature and became aware of a lot of the challenges like climate. And then as a business person, at the same time, we were raising a family and all that. I was working at Goldman Sachs. Uh, This is before the financial crisis. I worked there from 84 to 2008. So a long time. I had a really positive experience. I worked with really good, honorable people, in my view, important, good clients on interesting problems. I really enjoyed it. And I think because of that experience, I became kind of a a fan of big business. I know big business doesn't always get everything right, of course. It gets things sometimes very wrong. But broadly speaking, I thought business at its best was a force for good. And at the same time, I had this view, wow, what will we do about addressing environmental challenges? So those two interests came together, and they've been with me ever since. Can business, the private sector, be harnessed to solve environmental problems? So then in 2005, I had been at Goldman for about 21 years, I guess. I thought, you know, I should go do this. I should leave Wall Street and go be an environmentalist. And most of my uh, colleagues thought I was crazy. And to be honest, my idea wasn't very well developed. At the time, our CEO was Hank Paulson. He went on to be the secretary treasurer under Bush. Hank Paulson was our CEO, so I had to go see him. I was a pretty senior person. And he said, tell me more about this idea of yours. And Hank was very sophisticated about the environmental movement. And he said, look, I just don't think your idea is very good, Mark. I have a better idea. Why don't you stay here and build an environmental effort for Goldman Sachs? So that was in 2005. That was a very forward thinking idea of Hank's. It was his idea, not mine, but I executed it. And he just had the simple point of view that, look, issues like climate change, biodiversity, water, they're not going to go away. They're going to compound to be bigger and bigger challenges. And if we at Goldman Sachs seek to be the premier investment bank, we should have leading expertise in that area. And it ought to be commercially viable. So I agreed to do that. Hank left to go work for President Bush. Hank's successor, Lloyd Blankfein, was very supportive. And our simple idea was we would require every business to have an environmental strategy. And it had to do two things. It had to lead to measurable positive environmental outcomes 
and it had to be good for the bottom line. So it all had to be commercial because Goldman was a very commercial place. I'm sure it still is. And so I didn't want this to be like some overhead or CSR opportunity. I wanted to make commercial sense. Our timing was very good. We had almost no competition because nobody else was doing this sort of thing yet. And uh, it went great. Um, again, I think we were a little bit lucky that almost everything we did worked. And so it really looked like we were onto something broadly. And I thought this idea makes sense. Business can be a force for good. So then to wrap up the story, a headhunter called me once not to recruit me, clearly not to recruit me. But the headhunter called me and said, hey, you're the head of uh, Goldman, Goldman's environmental effort. Maybe you have some good ideas on who could be the next CEO of the Nature Conservancy. We're doing a search. So I nominated myself. Um, again, my friends all thought I was crazy, but I really hustled. And again, this was mid-2008. So it was a time when the environmental community was beginning to think harder about, boy, should we be thinking about market-oriented opportunities to accelerate environmental progress? So anyway, I was very fortunate. I hustled and I amazingly got the job. So I joined the Nature Conservancy in July 2008. Lucky break for me. I remain very grateful. Yeah, it, it definitely shows. And there are lots of points to jump off. I'll give a little bit of a teaser to some things that we'll talk about. Um, it sounds like you were what you were doing at Goldman at the time as a precursor to things like Allbirds SPO, although yeah, yeah. that did get kind of scrapped. But I, I definitely want to talk about TCFD and SPOs and the future there. You, you mentioned climate origin story, essentially. It's a question I love to ask guests. And so... I'm wondering if, you know, from your experience or you have any examples of helping bring out people, bring out their climate origin story or their inner environmentalist, as you called it, in a way that they may not have thought of or by helping show them kind of, I think something that you've been charged with, fair or not, is being a pragmatist and um, being able to work across the lines. And so how have you used that skill set to help bring out the inner environmentalist? So many things to talk about in that great question. Um, First, how to, how to help people discover their inner environmentalist. I learned a lot about how to do this at the Nature Conservancy. So the Nature Conservancy, of course, was a great, great organization before I joined. And it remains, I left in 2019. It remains a great organization. Uh, so I don't want anyone to think like, oh, it was all me. It was hardly all me. It's a great org. And, and especially the things that are core to what the Nature Conservancy does. So the Nature Conservancy always has sought to be a nonpartisan organization that brings people together to protect nature. And, uh, and also the Nature Conservancy is a very capital intensive NGO. It's huge. It's like one of the biggest nonprofits in the world. You know, size isn't everything, but, but size can be powerful for protecting nature. And, and the Nature Conservancy is the biggest environmental organization. So they've, they've also learned how to do a lot of fundraising. And so a lot of what TNC did, it would, it, it would sometimes find people who were concerned about some local issue. It was almost, it wasn't exactly nimbyism, but it, it looked like that. Like somebody was concerned, there's a beautiful area that they cared about, maybe not so much as an environmentalist, they just cared about it. And, uh, and, and TNC would um, work with these people to protect that. But then kind of, I always call this luring them into the swamp. We would invite them to visit other TNC projects, and kind of like my experience on my nature trips, we would introduce them to the TNC team, including our scientists and, and everybody on the team were really interesting people. They were fun to hang out with in nature because you'd learn a lot about nature and you'd learn a lot about these cool people whose lives and careers have been based in nature. I miss that. And so I think a lot of uh, waking the inner environmentalists is, is getting people outdoors, number one, and then having them hang around with low key environmentalists who help them understand how ecosystems work. 
I think that's how you do it. You know, this book that got a lot of attention recently just comes to mind. Richard Powers, The Overstory. Uh, such a great book and it got so much attention, but he kind of describes the story the same way. I forget why it is what motivated him to write the book, but he enjoyed working on that book so much. He then moved to the Smoky Mountains and then his next book was another environmental book. There are so many examples like this and it's a lot of what I did at the Nature Conservancy. We had a really successful program in China that TNC still does and we had success getting business people involved. So Jack Ma, who runs Alibaba, and Tony Ponyma, who runs Tencent, the two internet juggernauts of China, they both help help this form a board of Chinese business people. And then I really admired this group of men. I mean, they were enormously accomplished business people in a position to really help us in China. But they used to go on trips and visit TNC projects all around the world. And uh, they did that to learn more about nature. They all admitted they didn't know that much about nature. They weren't embarrassed. They, were, they wanted to learn. And then they wanted to learn how to protect it in China. So they tried to learn from TNC examples all around the world. So I, I could go on and on and on. I think you just have to try to do this. The second thing which we should talk about, I'll be quiet now, though, is, is crossing, crossing divides and collaborating and getting along with people who don't exactly see things the same way you do. I think it's a hugely underweighted environmental tool. I'm wondering if there's any specific lessons you learned or techniques you have to bring people together. And I'm going to talk about Nature's Fortune a lot, which is your book. Now, I think everyone should go read it. And I, you know, I get no dividends from that's the case. <laughs> but I, I really think it has a number of fantastic examples of NGOs, people who might identify as being on the hard right, activists, businesses, governments coming together. And so, again, I, I, I mean, I feel free to continue talking about exactly what you were on. Okay. Well, you were really nice to mention my book, Nature's Fortune. I wrote it kind of a long time ago, so I almost don't even remember. But I wrote that book as the CEO of the Nature Conservancy. It was pretty early in my tenure. And I wrote it with the perspective of a person who, who joined the NGO world later in life after a career on Wall Street. And I tried to emphasize two big things. One, we had this big opportunity to invest in nature. We can think of nature, of course, environmentalists, including me, think we should protect nature because it's just the right thing to do, period, full stop. I agree with that. But we need more people on the side of nature and more financial resources on the side of nature and more political allies on the side of nature. So I think it's also appropriate to emphasize that you can think of nature as a capital base, uh, natural capital or green infrastructure versus gray man-made infrastructure. And I didn't invent these ideas, um, but I, I, I use them. And it's, it's one way you can get more people on the side of nature. So, of course, we should try to build a, a constituency of people who want to protect nature because we care about other species. We care about future generations. I agree with that. But we can also get people on the side of nature because it's very practical. So if we think about climate change, for one example, and the problem of sea level rise in extreme weather, how will humankind deal with this in all these um, you know, coastal areas? Well probably humankind will build a lot of gray infrastructure, seawalls and things like that. We'll probably need that. But in many cases, I'm quite certain of this, and TNC scientists and other scientists have done a lot of work. Oftentimes, um, mangroves or dune systems or um, other coastal ecosystems can provide better protection or equal protection to a seawall at lower cost and you get a lot of environmental benefits for free, co-benefits. 
that's a way to cross divides because um, I read in the news recently, here's an example. Miami is obviously very vulnerable to sea level change and, and extreme um, weather. And I think until recently, it seemed to me, Miami leaders weren't paying as much attention to this topic as they should be. Obviously, the economic stakes are very, very high. Miami's this booming city and all these high rises and fancy resorts right on the coast. So anyway, I, I guess now now they have sunny day flooding uh, when the tides are operating in a certain way. Coastal water enters the sewer systems and emerges on streets on perfectly sunny days. So that will get your attention, I imagine, if you're a leader in Miami. So then anyway, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, was was commissioned to do some study of how to protect Miami from sea level rise. And they proposed a bunch of gray infrastructure, which, again, I think it would work, but of course, would be hugely damaging to Miami. It would be you know, unattractive, among other things. And so then the leaders of Miami, who I don't think by and large would consider themselves hardcore environmentalists or champions of natural capital. They pushed back and said, no, no, we need green infrastructure. We can protect our city in better ways than gray infrastructure. So that's a nice example, I think, of growing the constituency for nature in a pragmatic way. There are all kinds of ways to do it, but that's one. The other thing I would just add is, I think there's also a style, personal style thing here. We often get bogged down. You know, you and I might disagree on something. And you see this a lot in environmental disputes. You think A, I think B. And so we kind of go to war, or at least that we have a strong argument, A versus B. And we, it often ends in a tie and nothing happens. Although we might have, as a result, an embittered personal relationship afterwards, because it can get very vitriolic. What I think is a shame about that starting at that approach is it might very well be that you and I agree on 90% of the important environmental topics, but we have a bad habit of starting where we disagree and digging in there. So I think there's an opportunity to put aside for a moment what you disagree on and see if you can find common ground and start there. Then a couple of positive things happen. First, the common ground opportunities are, can be jointly pursued. Second, you and I can get to know one another and learn to have a little more confidence or admiration for one another. And so then when we finally get to the place where we disagree, it's not a vitriolic, suspicious conversation or debate. Then I think it's easier for people to say, let's let's think this through. Maybe there's a way to make some progress or maybe not. I think um, there's a big opportunity for more of that in the environmental world. Now, not everybody agrees with me because they say, well, look, Mark, you're just naive. Look, there are these bad actors out there. They don't, don't tell me we should go find common ground with these bad actors. Again, I think we can hold more, a couple of thoughts in our head at one time. Fine. If there are bad actors out there and it's pretty clear, don't, don't go seek common ground with them. Campaign against them. But I think there are most players are more gray. They've got some bad qualities and attributes and good ones. And I say, let's go look for common ground. I was just reading the um, the Stinson Dean story, if you followed that, about the, how the price of lumber is actually a climate story. And then like BC mm-hmm. and the Beatles and how the Beatles have much more of, I guess, and the Beatles for record are, I believe they're Japanese Beatles, are coming and eat and destroying tons of timber land, timber yeah. in BC. And it's just an incredible story. Um, he does a podcast on the, I think it's the Odd Lots podcast that Bloomberg does, everyone should listen to. But also the Ted Countdown video, pre-4COP26, with Christian 
James, co-founder of Engine Number One, and Lauren McDonald, who's this climate activist, and then Ben Van Buren, who's the CEO of Royal Dutch Shell, and she walks off, and it's it's exact it's, it's this exact idea of you know being able to hear other people's side of the story, but it feels like at least to me that we're again like moving towards this more partisan world, and so I'm wondering in today's society, if you were like you know recommendations for your younger self or recommendations for younger people today, is there any experiences or communities they should get involved in to help build this ability to hear both sides of the story and and especially in industry and in environment? Well, it's such an interesting uh, thing to explore. Uh, I, I too am worried about the divisiveness and partisanship and polarization you point to. I, I think it's it's worrisome and it also just kind of makes life, it just, it just tarnishes life and gets in the way. I, I think it's really a shame. So now what do we do about it? That's clearly not my area of expertise. And here I think my upbringing helped. I had, that's where we started. My parents just sort of threw me out in the world and we mixed it up with diverse types of people. And I think there should be more of that, but there clearly is less of it. People, the world now it just is organized in a way that you can choose to spend your time with people who see the world the way you do. You can watch TV or read blogs or read books or live in communities where everybody is more like you. And and I think that's a shame. I wish we were less like that. I told you I lived in Japan. I lived in Japan twice as an adult, three years, 79 to 82. And then again, 90 to 93. I had a positive experience in Japan. But one thing I really remember fondly about Japan is the way the place is organized, cities, most people live in cities. There are cars, there's bad traffic, et cetera. But the way most people get around is they walk to trains and take trains everywhere. It's an extraordinary train system. And then the cities are just laid out differently. So the, the, the streets are all kind of small and curly. It just is bad for car traffic, good for walking around and discovering stuff. And you're always mixing it up with different people. And then you compare that to the way we live in America right now. And it's like the opposite. So um, I think we need to worry about that. And, um, and, and it doesn't, you don't need to be an environmentalist to worry about that. Almost every important social cause, social sector issue one cares about, polarization, partisanship gets in the way. We need majority coalitions on the side of justice, I would say. And we all need to do our best to go build them. And I think a lot of that starts with being open-minded and getting to know people with different points of view and trying to find common ground. And I think one of the ways that we help find common ground is through pricing, right? Money, kind of this uh, this great communicator. And so jumping back to um, Nature's Fortune, and we kind of touched on this a little bit when talking about Goldman, how have you, you, so you spent a lot of time thinking about how to price nature and it, it's come up a ton, right? Either carbon tax, cap and trade, carbon offsets, carbon removal, all of these things. When did you start thinking about pricing nature? What mechanisms or techniques do you think are the best way to do it? And where do we still need to innovate in terms of finding ways to properly price all the externalities of a fossil fuel based economy or really an energy based economy, I should say? Yeah, well, yeah, again, you're asking a lot in every question. Um, one, I wouldn't call it pricing nature or commoditizing nature. When you when you talk about nature that way, it really turns a lot of people off or offends people. And it probably they're probably right to be offended. So uh, you called me a pragmatist. I think I I'm OK with that uh, phrase or that that name if if because what I have in mind of myself is I want to like solve problems and get things done. 
So when I worked at the Nature Conservancy, and the nature, they're very good at this. They remain very good at this. We raised a ton of money, a huge amount of money from donors to go protect nature. It was great. We did a $7 billion capital campaign when I was the CEO. It's like a staggering amount of philanthropy. And it's not just like very wealthy people. It's mom and pops, normal people. So God bless all those people for making donations to organizations like the Nature Conservancy to protect nature. But again, I was trained as a finance guide. So I said, well, this is great, but we shouldn't be constrained by that alone. We need more capital on our side. Why, do, why don't we let, we can think of that, those donations, that philanthropic capital as our equity to use the parlance of corporate finance. And then we can, in a risk appropriate way, lever up that equity by borrowing money or accessing money from investors. So we'll have more capital to protect even more nature and to do things at scale. The reason I explained it that way then is, is I didn't want to commoditize or price nature. I just wanted to raise, raise more capital. So we did really uh, cool and even sophisticated things. We did net debt for nature swaps to protect marine habitat in the Seychelles. We did a, a coral reef insurance deal with Swiss Re in Mexico to protect the coral reefs outside Cancun. We did what I called an LBO for nature. We raised an enormous staggering amount of capital to buy and protect forest lands in Montana and Washington. But, but the idea there was just get more capital involved to protect nature. Then you asked about externalities. It's really a question for economists, not me, but we have this problem in that it's legal and free to dump carbon pollution into the atmosphere. So if you saw, if you were driving down the road and you saw some factory dumping garbage into a river, you'd like, you know, somebody would call the authorities and they'd shut the factory down and we'd stop it because we know at a gut level, that's wrong. We're ruining the plains, the common shared ecosystem. One commercial player is doing that, cutting corners for his, his own gain. That's bad. But we, we don't do the same thing with carbon pollution. You know, and it's more complicated. I get that. We don't do it for many externalities. So for a long time, environmentalists thought we would price carbon through a carbon tax. That's the easiest way to explain it. And if you wanted to emit carbon in the atmosphere, you'd have to pay for it. The price would be to cover the social cost of carbon. Since therefore it would become more expensive to emit carbon, it would become relatively less expensive to do all the things we want to do to reduce carbon pollution. I hope that's a simple explanation. The problem we have is it's proven almost impossible to do that in America. Um, and I don't think we saw this coming. But Amer Americans just seem to want low energy prices. Um, and you know, who am I to criticize Americans? You see it right this minute. Energy prices are high. I don't think I would support this, but for a minute, though, though our White House, who I think are generally on the right side of climate issues, they were so concerned about rising energy prices, not for bad reasons. They were concerned about, you know, less well-off people for whom those energy rising energy prices are kind of a big regressive tax. We we're asking Venezuela to ramp up production and things like that. It just goes to show that pricing carbon, pricing that externality is politically very difficult. So either we have to build more common ground, more political support for doing so. I still think we should try to do that. We could do it gradually. We could do it over time. I think it's doable. It would be easier if, if the country felt we needed to raise taxes to address deficits and things. For some reason, we, that's lost traction, that argument. But if we can't address climate pollution that way, then there are other ways to do it too. And um, the two Biden bills, the one that passed and the one that didn't pass, together would have gone a long way to do that. Unfortunately, one of the bills didn't pass. 
but you know, we had incentives for electric vehicles. We had incentives for electric vehicle charging. We had mandates. This has gone away. We had mandates for states to ramp up renewable power and you got, there were penalties if you didn't do so rewards. If you did that has that part of it hasn't passed, but you can think of all of these things as ways to ramp up and lower the cost of clean energy since we haven't been able to raise the cost of using fossil fuel energy. Anyway, it's complicated. It's hard. Uh, I don't mean to knock any of our political leaders. I think a lot of them are really fighting the good fight to do this. It needs more political support. So people who care about climate, you have to care about political matters. Of course, you have to vote. I used to always say at TNC, you've got to vote because voting rates were so low. Voting rates are now up. So that's good. But then you have to go beyond that. You've really got to dig in on these issues because you can't do this stuff on a voluntary basis, which reminds me of one more thing we should talk about, which is all these voluntary business efforts to address climate and other environmental problems. I'm a champion of this stuff. It's what I do now, 100% of my time. Push business to do more on a voluntary basis. So I do that because I say, wow, public policy isn't where it needs to be right now, even though that's the most important thing. And it doesn't feel to me, although we have to try, 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 make it our highest priority, it doesn't feel like to me, that's going to improve very much in the near term. Time is not on our side. So let's push the private sector as hard as we can to do more. I think that's good. But it shouldn't be viewed as a panacea. It won't get us all the way where we need to go. It all comes back to politics, political power. Everybody needs to be an engaged political citizen. Oh, my God. Fantastic. So many places to go. You mentioned LBOs for Nature, which I'd love if you could share more of. And I'll, I'll say one of my favorite pieces in your blog, again, I'm going to kind of push it a little bit, uh, the instigator, is this idea of LBOs for Nature um, and ETFs for the Amazon, I believe, was the name of the title of, the, of that post. Do you have favorite a favorite mechanism that is, like, if, if, the, if we could harness all of the political will, do you have a favorite maybe financing for the environment mechanism or policy that we could enact that would do the most? being for the most buck kind of thing yeah by the way thank you for mentioning my newsletter the instigator it's on Substack. it's free i kind of put a lot of effort into it so please read my newsletter and let me know what you think um do i have a favorite like strategy to address environmental challenges so as i just noted yes public policy um we need rules we need mandates and we need more government spending now, it gets quite complicated after that blanket statement because there's a range of choices and some are better choices than others. However, it's not always the best ones that have the most political viability. It's, another, it's an area of nuance, therefore. It's another place, too, where I think environmentalists can try harder. So sometimes environmentalists criticize pragmatists or centrists. Maybe I'm sensitive because I'm <laughs> often one of the people criticized, but it's not... There's a place, of course, for arguing what is the purest, best approach that drives thinking and, and knowledge. And I think environmentalists are very good at that. And that's important. But again, we don't have time. If we had all the time in the world, we could debate this stuff forever. But we have the opposite of time. We have no time. So it's a it's a rather a question of like, what will work best that is doable? And so I really thought those two Biden bills were very good in combination. They were all imperfect. If you're a critic of government, you know, if you're a more libertarian or 
you lean toward being suspicious that governments are inefficient. Yeah, I, you would have some room to argue that these bills weren't perfect because there was a lot of there were a lot of government programs. But the Biden team, I think, appropriately concluded, hey, there wasn't a better way to go forward. So we were going to go with some big government programs. There were mandates. Uh, so a lot of especially uh, environmentalists influenced by economists, I, I used to be one of them, thought, no, no, we shouldn't have the government deciding where investment dollars go. The market will always do a better job. I think that's right. But that requires that you price externalities. Uh, and, and we've been unable, by and large, to have such policies operative. And so then I think you need to go with mandates. And kind of weirdly, mandates have another advantage. They're less visible. And so and this might not be good, but you can get away with mandates where you can't like. So, for example, you can have a carbon tax. OK, that would discourage use of, of coal and, and natural gas in, in power plants. But 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 it's very visible and it's also kind of partisanly toxic. And so it's a political fight and it just seems to be non viable. But you can have clean energy programs state by state that require every year the utility ramp up its its renewable energy. And there are exceptions to this, but those generally encounter less political flack and you, they're doable. They're less efficient, I think, from a pure economics perspective. For, so for every dollar invested, you're getting a little bit less environmental gain, but it's worth it because you're getting environmental gain at an affordable price, in my view. So anyway, that's how policy goes. Then you asked about all the when I was at the Nature Conservancy, we did all these really cool, innovative deals to financial innovation in behalf of nature. And the Nature Conservancy continues to do them, post me, and other organizations do this. I think that's getting more and more traction. I would say the challenge with all of those deals, though, is by and large, they're pilots, or maybe they're more than pilots, like debt for nature swaps. There's been more than one, but there haven't been a lot more than one recently. The Swiss reinsurance deal that I mentioned, I think, is still an only example. The LBOs for nature, I don't know, there have only been a couple. And so somehow we need to scale them. And I think what I would like to see happen is the private sector take more responsibility for those kinds of projects from the NGO. So NGOs like the Nature Conservancy, but others, there are so many other, I don't want to keep naming TNC. We worked with WWF, WRI, uh, WCS, CI, and those are the big guys. And there are all these smaller conservation organizations. There are a lot of great ones. And they all do pilots. You know, they each have their different area of strength. But NGOs aren't, I don't think, the right vehicles to scale and replicate those pilots. That's where you need either the government, but if the government's going to be on its heels, the private sector should, should do more. Which, again, brings me back to what I do today, and I write about this a lot in my newsletter. Let's push the private sector harder to do more. But I don't want as enthusiastic as I am about that, we just have to recognize there are limits because the private sector is in business to generate, you know, long-term value for shareholders. And so there are limits to what the private sector can do all by itself. After the break, Mark and I dive into policies that are today untenable, but in the future, upcoming regulation that may have the opportunity to drive major impact. We also cover 30 and 30 and the role biodiversity has in the climate crisis and Stuart Brand's influence on Mark's climate journey. All that and more after a quick word from our sponsor, Climate People. Season three of the Net Zero Life is powered by Climate People. Climate People is a technology recruiting firm dedicated to decarbonizing the economy through placing mission-driven talent into climate tech careers. 
We focus on data, software, product, and user experience recruitment across all climate sectors. Whether you're a job seeker looking to use your skills for good or a hiring manager looking to build out your team of mission-driven engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. Season three of the podcast is we're summing up this idea of like the individual action versus the collective action, right? So like how can people force multiply their effort, whether that's through voting or in this case, the, your example of helping private companies push to do more. I would love to talk about the most recent SEC disclosure rules around climate and how um, in terms of the action that you are thinking about for private companies, what does that look like? What does that action look like? Before we get there, though, you mentioned that some of the best ones are untenable in terms of um, policies in your story a moment ago. I'd love to hear what those are in terms of the best policies that are untenable because of current political will. Well, by the way, untenable is probably too strong of a word. Just because something looks very, very difficult or even possible at one moment in time doesn't mean that can't change very quickly. And again, your, your listeners will know their American history or even global history, policy can change. So I don't mean that we should give up, for sure. We should not give up. So um, let's just think about climate change, a price on carbon, or a cap and trade. A high price on carbon that rises over time would, I think, unlock a tremendous amount of progress. It wouldn't do everything, because we've waited so long. The price would have to be very high to do everything, but we should still do that. Of course, the immediate objection would be, my goodness, that would be very unfair and difficult for less well-off people for whom energy is a higher percentage of their household budget. That's true, but you could offset that through um, you know, a tax and dividend program or other tax reductions, et cetera. That's not an insurmountable obstacle, just a little politically complicated. So that would be my number one pick for climate, price on carbon, high one that rises over time, or you can do the same thing through a cap and trade. For biodiversity that doesn't get enough attention right now, we have in China this year, it's kind of like the Paris Climate Conference that was quite positive for climate momentum. We have the Convention on Biological Diversity Conference meeting in China this year. And the goal, for, the outcome from that conference will be 30 by 30, whereby the world will come together, I believe, and say, we need to protect 30% of nature by 2030 to protect biodiversity. Because that's how you protect biodiversity in the simplest way, just protect huge amounts of nature for biodiversity to thrive. So there's a lot the private sector can do here, but we need government programs to protect nature at scale. Mandates that just make a lot of nature off limits for development, for example. Uh, Financial programs aid, international aid from rich countries to poorer countries to protect nature at scale. All this stuff, by the way, all these issues interrelate. So if if you do 30 by 30 for biodiversity, a lot of climate outcomes and water outcomes and community outcomes will also be achieved. But that should be a very high government program. And I think that's mostly capital, dollars, aid from governments to protect nature at scale. There's the the horrific issue of plastic. So we have the the very famous issue of the plastic bottles and oceans, which is bad. We also have the the less famous, probably more pernicious issue of all these plastic compounds breaking down and infiltrating humans and other, other animals and causing huge health crises, doesn't get as much attention. What do we do here? I think the private sector can, can, and they're on it, they're they're sort of on it at least, drive recycling 
Uh, but then the government needs to step up too. So, you know, for recycling to work, like there are some pretty good private sector recycling initiatives underway and they're constrained because they can't get enough stuff to recycle. And so wherever you live, it's different. It's so frustrating. Like in DC, we recycle to a pretty good degree. That's how we put out our trash. And then, you know, what happens afterwards? It's it's murky. And every place has got a different, we, we just need to get on recycling and we need to get on ending single use plastic. So we could go on and on. There are there are policy fixes. And, and I don't want to state that any of these are impossible. You know, Maryland, where uh, right next door to me in D.C. and where you grew up, has a new recycling initiative. I won't remember the details right now. It's a private public private partnership. You know, it's classic. It's already gotten some flack from the left leaning environmentalists, which again I think is OK, because you want to keep the spotlight on these things and make sure they're working as well as they can. But I, I thought it was a nice example of, uh, of, of there's a real opportunity for some con- some conservation gains in the area of plastic recycling done at the, at the state level. Uh, that doesn't all have to be federal politics. Let's talk about 30 for 30 for a second. And I promise to the listeners that we will go back to climate disclosures and, and private action. You mentioned and 30 by 30, a large part of achieving that is going to be government support and, and large capital. But you also most recently talked about crypto in your in your last few blog posts. And, and, and so I'm curious if there's a role for decentralization in protecting large swaths of area, whether that's through blockchain technology um, or NFTs or whatever. And I think I think back to like the Green Bay Packers, right, which is like such a great great example of protecting an asset via decentralization, right? Like all of these individual shareholders own shares of the Green Bay Packers, but they can never sell them. And so is there, uh, you've talked about a little bit, I'm wondering if there's any strings I can pull on to share how, um, how we can leverage that technology to help protect nature. Yeah. So crypto, blockchain, Web 3.0, I'm not an expert. I'm sure many of your listeners will know more than me. But I, I'm hearing a lot from entrepreneurs in this area, and it's, it to me seems very exciting. So uh, these really cool people who are starting a, one initiative asked me to get involved as an advisor, maybe as a board member. And I said, look, this is not my area of expertise. And they said, no, but we want you because what you wrote about in Nature's Fortune and what you did in Nature's, at the Nature Conservancy, that was sort of a Web 2.0 equivalent of financial innovation for nature. We really admire it. They were very polite to me and very flattering. We learned so much. So I said, well, thank you very much. They said, what's cool now is with crypto and blockchain, we can take that to the next level and we can draw on what you learned at Web 2.0 equivalent and you can help us on Web 3.0. Now, I'm not the expert, but some of the things I'm learning. So I'm a big champion of of nature based carbon removal. So this gets a little bit wonky and not not everybody likes it. But in the Paris Climate Accord, where the world agreed we need to be at net zero, we need to aim to be at net zero in 2050. I hope we can make it. The countries also agreed there's still going to be enough use of fossil fuel energy at that point in time that we won't yet be able to avoid, that we will need removal of the carbon from the atmosphere to get to net zero. And there are kind of two ways to remove carbon from the atmosphere. There's nature. Nature absorbs carbon and can store it. And then there are these technological innovations to take carbon out of the atmosphere. But today, I mean, they're making good progress. I'm optimistic, but today they're very energy intensive. They're very expensive. So nature is the best way to do it right now. And also not to get too wonky, there's a difference between avoiding emissions. You could do that by, for example, by protecting a standing forest. So the nature conservancy, we did a lot of this. You could say, let's protect more of the Amazon. It'll be good for biodiversity. It'll be good for water. It'll be good for the communities. And if that forest remains standing, it's a store of carbon. But it's not 
there's a little bit of carbon removal occurring, but most of the carbon is, is has been removed and is in those trees. So it doesn't count as removal per the Paris COP goal. Removal, though, could be achieved by planting a new forest to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, it might be possible to do this at scale with better farming techniques, so-called regenerative agriculture. The science is complicated, but it seems like that will work. There are these different kinds of initiatives, but this is really complex because it's a new field and not all of these projects have worked as built. And it gets a lot of people very upset. They say, oh, this is a scam. This is bad. Uh, people are buying carbon credits and they're not working. I don't think, I mean, I'm sure there have been instances where it's a scam. I think more often what's happened is it's a new kind of intervention and it's complicated and it's more complicated than was originally thought. So there's definitely room for improvement here. I agree with the critics in that case. There's a lot of room for improvement. If somebody buys carbon removal, we of course want that removal to occur. But now it can start to get very tricky, right? Because if we're talking about new forests or agriculture all around the world, you need to monitor and verify all of this. And how are you gonna do that in a way that's trustworthy? And if the cost of all that monitoring are very, very high, it's gonna make this kind of carbon removal uneconomic. And so technology to the rescue. So first satellites now are allowing us to monitor things with a much higher degree of confidence in low cost ways than before. And then to the crypto crowd, they're saying we can use decentralized blockchain technology to uh, build robust confidence in a decentralized way in these kinds of interventions. And not only in the area of carbon removal, but in other investments in nature. Um, so I know enough to say that, uh, but don't quiz me. I mean, but that's the nature of the opportunity. I think that holds a lot of water. Further, people are arguing then we can use co coins and tokens to um, kind of, in a most effective way, most effective way, create a, an asset class that will allow people to play in this market. Now, it's mostly unproven, but I think it's quite good that all these, in, all these creative entrepreneurs and technologists are directing their attention here. And if you think about other things that blockchain does, like, you know, the apes and these things, the different NFTs, I'm no expert, but, but even I think, well, isn't it good that these smart people are directing all their acumen to this really important opportunity to protect nature. So that's sort of what is happening out there. And, you, and there are a lot of people you can get on your podcast to talk about that who know more than me, but I'm rooting, I'm rooting for them. I, I think this is super positive. hundred percent. And I just made a connection that I hadn't previously thought before, which is that crypto was and still is rife with scams. Right. And it's kind of um, a harbinger of a new industry. Right. And it's kind of, you know, this is the consequences you deal with of scaling an industry and, and helping it reach a broad audience. Can I make another comment? Yeah, of course. I'm reading right now the brand new biography of Stuart Brand, who is one of my heroes and a friend. I've had the good fortune to do some work with him. But most people know Stuart as the guy who invented the whole Earth catalog. And he's like been on the cutting edge of all these trends all along. And he was one of the early people to see what the new type of computers that were originating. He lived in Silicon Valley, but it wasn't called Silicon Valley. then. he was like a, hanging out with Ken Kesey, believe it or not. But he... he he had the ability, more than some people do, to see that these new emerging technologies can be harnessed for good. So while I'm reading this book, which is great, I keep thinking, oh, yeah, this is a message to me. Mark, be similarly alert to the new emerging technologies that can help us address today's challenges. So not like technology can be a panacea, but uh, we have a lot of environmental challenges on our hands. So let's let's harness every tool we possibly can to address them. And so then, and, and that spirit, I think it's really good that the crypto crowd is doing this. 
And then, of course, there's a lot of people lamenting the energy costs of, of uh, Bitcoin, et cetera. It's a real issue. But again, same folks are on that, too. They know that they need to address that. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. Yeah. Okay, we are definitely going to run out of time. I promise we talk about it. So I'd love to talk about kind of the future of climate related disclosures, finance emissions, sustainable public offering. I feel like you're a perfect person to answer that in the sense that you ran public offering at Goldman. Your, uh, your thoughts in general around how that will actually drive action on the private side? Yes, great question. So um, a couple of things to say. First, it's really great that so much private, voluntary private sector action has been generated in connection with ESG issues broadly, environmental, social, and governance, or environmental issues broadly, or climate more specifically. And lots of people deserve credit. Uh, it's a huge global army of people who have been pushing for that. And guess what? They're really getting traction. So I think it's wonderful. And so, so many companies now, uh, like the Science-Based Target Initiative, which was one of the many coalitions of companies making long-term climate goals, uh, I think they have, well, I'm, I'm going to get the number on two to 3,000 companies now signed up and making commitments. It's really remarkable. Now, when you look a little bit closer, though, you can be a little cynical or skeptical. You say, ah, yeah, but these commitments, they're still back-end dated. People are saying they'll bet need net zero by 2040 or 2050. Fine. But I say, listen, you've got to start somewhere. And that's a good start. So now, And then it's not just companies, of course. You also have investors. You have all these ESG investors and people like Larry Fink, you know, Disclosure. He's a friend of mine uh, at BlackRock. And I guess he doesn't get everything right, but he has really pushed the investing community to elevate these issues, too. So there's a lot to be happy about. But now the question is, OK, how do you one, how far can you take it? As noted earlier, I think there is limits to this. And so we need to get all of those companies to push for the policy we need. I don't think voluntary efforts alone will get there. But how do we make these voluntary efforts as robust as possible? Here it gets quite complicated. But I just wrote in my newsletter yesterday that came out. We need to remember this is all new. So when we think of gap accounting, which by and large works, not always, but usually works, investors usually can be pretty confident that the public disclosure they rely on when they make investments are good. But that, that was a, a decade, de decades long struggle. And it was only the depression, really fraudulent accounting that finally created the SEC and got that right. Well, the same sort of thing is happening with ESG disclosure or environmental disclosure more specifically. It's getting better. And like investors today are complaining, whose ESG rating should we listen to? Which of these many disclosures should we are we required to read? And companies are complaining too. How many of these things do we have to comply with? And it's all fair and true. We need a clearer set of guidelines, but we're getting there. So the SEC just last week announced that they have a plan to require carbon emission disclosure so publicly, publicly listed companies would have to disclose their emissions. And the way they say it is they think at least scope one and two, maybe even three. And they also say if you have a, this is really interesting, if you have a goal to say you're going to be carbon neutral or net zero or anything else, you've got to be super clear. You've got to disclose anything that's material about this. Now, little caveat, let me tell you, I was an investment banker for a long time and you're right. I ran equity capital markets and I was a corporate finance. I ran corporate finance too. Companies take these SEC rules very seriously. So I don't know if everybody realizes that, but if you don't disclose something you should have disclosed or you don't tell the truth, like you can go to jail if you're an executive or you're a board member. 
So people really take such disclosures seriously. So I think this is a big deal. Now, a long period of time is going to pass before these things become mandates. There'll be lots of back and forth. And that's good because it's got to be done in a way that works. Um, you know, these these rules like scope three will be complex. Like I think right this minute, based on today's technology, companies can't confidently disclose their scope three emissions. So either the bar has to be a little lower there or scope three comes later. I, I don't know what the outcomes will be, but I think this is a big deal. I'll say one other thing in my current work, like a few as recently as one month ago, a very senior business person to me when I mentioned scope one, scope two, scope three said, well, wait a second, what does that mean? And I had to explain it which is funny, right? It's kind of a wonky concept. Your listeners probably understand these scopes. Well, it's not wonky anymore. Just by the stroke of the SEC's pen, I promise you there's not a CFO or accounting firm and soon boards of directors who aren't going to learn what scope one, two, three emissions mean. So I think this is a big deal and something we can be excited about. There are a lot of caveats. One caveat I'll notice, because I'm an environmentalist, I'm not a climate person, might this suck the air out of the room? And if all the effort is connected to climate, might there be no room left for biodiversity and water issues and plastic issues? Well, we can't let that happen. So that's a complication. Another complication is in Europe, they have a completely different approach right now. Fine. I think that's probably okay in the near term. I think the U.S. approach is, is, is in my view, sounder, but we'll see. But we'll need common approaches ultimately because we're talking about global companies. But it's pretty exciting and is worth paying close attention to. And I would say to the Biden administration broadly, Gary Gensler, another, you know, he was my partner, Goldman Sachs. He's the head of the SEC. I would say this is this is a nice piece of work by a regulatory agency. I know a lot of people don't won't like it. Fine. Then dig in and engage and, and make your best case. But here's a case of a government agency leading. By God, they're leading to address a pretty fundamental issues. And I think it's really exciting and positive. Yeah, 100%. I should throw out a disclaimer that I actually sell carbon accounting software outside of the podcast, right? So I'm super excited about it as well. I mean, we mentioned SBTI, which has two to 3,000 companies. Over 12,000 companies are already submitting their emissions to the Carbon Disclosure Project or CDP. It's 100% a super exciting time. It's also an interesting example of not necessarily a policy, but a mandate and how the intersection of those two um, come to play in the current political environment. Mark. First of all, thank you so much. This has been so enjoyable. I have a few, which I think might be short answer questions, but you can answer. You can take as long as you want. Um, Shorter. I've been long. (laughs) No, it's great. People are listening to hear your voice and not mine. If slash when the climate crises get solved, what do you decide to spend your time doing? These environmental challenges, climate, biodiversity, solving's not in the realm of the possible in the near term. So you have to view these as long-term uh, engagements. And I feel very grateful. I just think I'm very, very fortunate. I had two careers, one on Wall Street as a Goldman Sachs banker, one as the CEO of the Nature Conservancy. I'm in a position where I can draw on those two experiences and try to be a champion of environmental progress. Uh, I think it suits my skills. It suits my interests. It energizes me. And so I think I can keep doing that for a long time, maybe even forever. So that's what I'm going to try to do. Love it. Um, I think you already touched on this a little bit, but what part of that the environmental challenges gets most often overlooked? I think the area that gets overlooked is the need to um, find ways to build the coalition or to work 
uh, with broader people, find common ground. I, it sounds Pollyannish, I guess, when I say that, but it doesn't feel that way to me. And in my own experience, it's not Pollyannish. Even folks who ardently disagree with one another, strongly disagree, vitriolically disagree on some point, will agree on many more things. And if you start with the latter, you can build so much momentum that you can even address those tough issues in a more, you know, way, a way with more possibility. I think it's a shame that we don't see more of that today. I hope we can see more of it. I actually think the private sector can, can be a leader there because most business people know when you're doing business, you don't want to get too picky about who you do business with. And so, but we need more of that, more, more finding common ground. Is there one book, podcast, blog that's really shaped your thinking or even as you were ramping up during your time leading the Nature Conservancy, is there any specific resource that you leaned on to help grow your thinking around how to best uh, you know, help tackle this challenge? I wrote a newsletter about books that really shaped me as an environmentalist. So it's in the archive. I won't remember them all. There were like 10 to 15 books. Books, have, uh, books helped me with my thinking. One that comes to mind, I mentioned I'm reading the biography of Stuart Brand right now, the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog, maybe now even, maybe almost 10 years ago now, he wrote a book called The Whole Earth Manifesto. I think it ages well. His thinking similar to mine, so he's probably accused of being a pragmatist too. It's an engineering approach to solving nature. I, I learned a ton. Lester Brown's many books Earth 3.0, um, I won't remember all the names of them. They're all great. They help you get your arms around problems. And, you know, he's not accused of being a pragmatist, but he's a big champion of pragmatic solutions. Um, the late E.O. Wilson's books taught me a lot. And then there's a book by a guy named Norman Fisher. He's a Zen priest based in San Francisco, Norman Fisher. I think the book is called Lessons in Compassion or Lessons in Empathy, similar title to that. And you might think, well, that's a weird, I wrote about this once in the newsletter. What, the, what does that have to do with um, environmental progress? And it's about being true to yourself, slowing down, thinking hard about who you are. Um, you're part of a, an overall, you could say ecosystem, he would probably say universe. Uh, I, used, I had a Prius that I drove when I, in D.C. when I worked at the Nature Jersey. I'd be driving around in my Prius to different meetings. And I had that book on CD in my car and I just had it permanently on. You don't have to read it in lesson. But it, the lesson always was slow down, take a deep breath, understand where the other person's coming from, view the other person with a kind heart. And it just, in my view, unlocked so much personal progress and made me a happier person. So I guess I'd start with that book even if it seems off point. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I'll say that I'm still working through your list. Um, two more questions, and then we'll, uh, I will uh, ask for another 60 minutes another time. Do you have a favorite climate change or environmental nonprofit that you recommend listeners get involved with, either financially or with their time? I got to know most of the leading environmental nonprofits very well when I was the CEO of the Nature Conservancy. I admire them all. I don't think there's a single exception. And I'm a donor, you know, often a small donor, but I'm a, I try to be a donor to every one of them. They all have different strategies, different personalities, different areas of focus. So I think people should get to know them. I almost don't think it matters too much where you start. The NGOs of the world do so much heavy lifting and everybody else is drawing on their hard work over decades. And so I think we're all obliged to support them. So find an NGO that appeals to you, and get involved. And you might say, well, I'm not in a position yet to be a donor. Then find one where you can be a volunteer. 
not only will it help those NGOs though, they will help you more in reverse. Hanging around with NGOs doing good work will get you to think less about yourself and more about making the world a better place. And it's the secret to finding uh, joy in your day-to-day living. So please support NGOs. Yeah. And I'll just double down on that last point that, you know, by giving to others, it truly helps with this self-actualization and, and finding happiness. Last but not least, um, how should people get in touch with you? Either follow your work, um, Twitter, obviously your blog. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn too. I find LinkedIn for the environmental community to really be great. Um, really a source of great information. And then, yeah, I'd appreciate it if you subscribe to my newsletter, The Instigator, on Substack. You can find it. I have a website, marktersick.com. Uh, but, you know, if you go there, you can find my Substack newsletter, but you can just find it by Googling it, too, or going to Substack. It comes out every two weeks. And I try very hard to write about the, the exact same issues we've been talking about. And I really welcome feedback complaints, criticisms, and suggestions of other topics. And I'd I'd appreciate that. Thanks very much for the opportunity to uh, speak with all of you today. Yeah, Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's been a blast. Thanks again to Mark for joining us today. You can connect with him on LinkedIn, Mark Tersik, that's M-A-R-K-T-E-R-C-E-K, or on Twitter, at Mark Tersik. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tawny Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, follow us and subscribe, and check out all of our social medias at The Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. Zero Life.